welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're in PwC's Washington, D.C. podcast studio, where I'm excited to be joined by retired slash retiring PwC International Tax Services partner, Richard McGinnis. Richard started his career in our Boston practice when slide rules and columnar work papers were still in vogue. Richard went on to spend 12 years plus in London leading our U.S. tax desk before repatriating back to the States about 10 years ago, where he's advised on all things international tax. Richard will officially be hanging up his green visor on June 30th of this year. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. How much did I get right? How long were you in London? 11. 11 years. Yeah, That's pretty, was close, pretty close. So when did we, you... We didn't use slide rules. You didn't do slide rules? No. There was, really, the, there was really nothing to do a, a slide rule about okay. in those days. What about the we other did, thing? We what? did use 14-column worksheets. They were about as... They were that wide, and they had 14 columns, and we would do depreciation schedules. So when I started, which was 1979, it was before the ACRS, which became makers the depreciation there was a there was a a revenue ruling eh, might have been a revenue procedure and it was a book and it listed like a thousand different things and what the life that you depreciated it over was and you would you would like if somebody was building a building you would take all these items and you would put them on this 14 column worksheet and calculate the depreciation out over the next 10 years so that you could figure out what the deductions were going to be in, on, on the depreciation of this building. And it was all done with pencils. All done with pencils. And then what, about, was what about pencils. foreign tax credits? Because that was also when we had we numerous had, baskets, we, right? No, 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 no. We only had two. Well, there were four, but really only two that counted. Because okay. there was a passive basket and, and pretty much everything else. The, the, you know, the shipping and all that stuff nobody ever cared about. So the – I apologize to the shippers. But – the we actually had a piece of paper. It was an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper that someone had put together to calculate your foreign tax credit limitation, and it was it was one of those things that no one knew exactly where it had come from, but it was just handed down to the people who actually did the computations for the tax returns, and you'd put these numbers in, and and out would come an answer, and. About 1980 or 81, we actually read the regs and went through and kind of proved that this thing was completely wrong. Okay. And we'd been doing the foreign tax credits, like just putting random numbers. No, no one had ever audited it. Nobody ever really cared. But the magic sheet didn't work the way it was supposed to. So your background is you went you went to law school. Tell us what's tell us about your education background before you started in 1979. What's your undergrad in? Uh, my undergrad is in quantitative analysis, so it's kind of a math okay. kind of a thing. And then I got uh, a law degree and a business degree. Okay, an MBA. And you started in public accounting right out of law school. I did. I I started with Coopers and Librand as was, um, right out of law school. All right. And, Doing all things right, there wasn't really a there was uh, international there no tax wasn't a thing was no, then. No, no, you did everything. You did personal tax returns. You did um, and and personal tax planning. And there and there was a whole 
there was a whole industry around personal tax mm -hmm. planning and, and the sale of tax shelters, which weren't which wasn't a pejorative term in 1979. Right. People, there was a, a tax shelter industry, and you sold like people would syndicate a partnership to build a building or to drill an oil well or to make a movie and go out and find investors who would take deductions for the the depreciation, the movie costs, and so forth, and then, and then in some cases, make some money when the thing was successful. Right. And when did you start to specialize in international? When did international really become kind of a thing that, that people were focused on and starting to establish well, a specialty? Well, it, it, became, it became a thing probably very shortly after I started. By, by 1981, 82, 83, the... A lot of the tech companies, in particular the software companies and the, and the hardware companies, were going international. So, you know, companies like IBM and, and companies like Digital Equipment and um, Compact Computer, which nobody had ever heard of because they've disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, but they were billion-dollar companies, and, and they, were, they were selling internationally, and they were suddenly setting up footprints. They, they weren't just exporting. They were actually setting up footprints all over the world, and that's when international tax became a thing. But even then, people didn't specialize in it. You might have, you know, a software client that was international, but you might also have a real estate client that was just doing U.S. real estate. And so, I would say it was after. I don't think we treated international tax as a specialty until the early 90s, maybe even the mid-90s. I think it was probably 91 or 92 that we, that, that Cooper's, as was, designated international as sort of a, even something worth having a, somebody focused on. Like it, and it wasn't a sure. specialty where we hired people in and so forth, but it was at least a specialty that there were certain people who became more knowledgeable in it and could be asked questions and so forth. Yeah, one of the things that I'm, you know, obsessed with is technology and how we can use technology in our business. I, I, I try to put myself back in the, the, the early mid eighties. You know, this is really pre email, pre everybody having PCs. Oh, yeah. So I can imagine trying to do cross border tax, right? Where you need information and understanding of the laws of foreign jurisdictions and you know, for now I'll send an email. Heck, I don't even need to send an email. Now I can text or chat, you know, one yeah. of our colleagues in Brazil, if it's right. you know close to the same time zone and get an answer immediately. I mean, I can actually do that in the middle of a client meeting to contact one of our yeah, friends absolutely. and partners down yeah. there. And so, so, so how did that work back in the day? Did you like send the mail carrier on the horse or like, how, yeah, how, yeah. How, yeah. We, the, so, so we did have mail carriers. So, I mean, we, we had a mail room. And in the mail room, there were a whole bunch of people because a lot of mail came in and a lot of mail went out. And mail got delivered to everybody in the office four, at least four times a day. Like mail was delivered like at nine o'clock in the morning and then 11 o'clock and then at two o'clock and at four o'clock. And they would take the mail around to everybody and they would pick up all the mail. And so there was this, and, and the volumes were high. Sure. I mean, like lots of letters going in and out. But if we had a question for Brazil, there was a machine on the, in, in, in those days on the 16th floor of, of uh, a building in Boston, and it was, a, it was a cable machine. 
and you would go in and if you were in if you were not in a hurry you'd write out a cable and you'd hand it to somebody who would then in their own sweet time probably you know in the in the next couple of hours type it into the cable machine if you were in a hurry you would type it in yourself and then you would wait and usually in a day or two you would go you would get if you were not in a hurry someone from the mailroom would bring you um and one of those old fashioned computer printout sheets that was about you know 14 columns wide again and 14 inches wide and on it would have been typed your answer your your question and your answer so you so send it to like the the Cooper's Brazil office yeah, for example yes. yeah. and and you if you knew the name of somebody in the Cooper's Brazil office you would address it to them but sometimes you just said the tax department because to whom it may concern yeah and and you'd get this answer back and you would read your question and you would read their answer in english and you would say that has nothing to do with the question i asked or maybe it has something to do with the question i asked but that wasn't what i really meant so i need to do this again and you would send them another cable and they would respond in a couple of days and after two or three or four cables you would get an answer that you kind of believed was an answer to the question that the client actually expected to be answered. And, and part of that was you not speaking Portuguese, and part right. of that was them not speaking great English, and part of that was a lack of a constant flow of international tax discussion mm-hmm. between the Brazilians and the Americans, which today you have people you talk to all the time. All the time. Whereas we would get a Brazil question maybe once a year, like maybe there'd be one company with one Brazil question in 1980. And so there wasn't this infrastructure of, I know this person, I'm going to, in France or Germany, yes, you know, you knew people and you could send them a fax or send, you can send them a fax, but you could send them a cable and expect to get an answer the next day that actually addressed the question you were hoping to get answered. But if it was India or Brazil, Mm. where the amount, the volume of, of international activity today is incredibly high, but the volume of international activity in 1980 was a trickle. You, you wouldn't get an answer for two weeks. And the clients never expected an answer. Yeah, I guess, right? They would. Within two weeks. Okay. And, and what replaced the cable? Was it cable, then fax, and then cable, fax then, to email? Cable, then fax, yeah. Um, we didn't have anything before fax like there was no i don't recall anything from cable to fax so yeah suddenly you could fax things and and individuals had fax addresses and you know there were fax machines in the office in various locations so somebody could send you a fax and it would come into it wasn't a little like machine on your desk right. like it was a machine a machine as big as as big as that uh the desk yeah the, the, the whole desk the desk is and well and and the it was like the copiers were this big. Right. And, and the, so the whole thing, yeah, w- w- became retail. Now, I had, a, I had a guy I'd send a fax to, and he would get it pretty quickly and send it back, you know, possibly the same day sure. or, you know, a couple of hours later, I might get an answer. So that was a huge quantum leap in terms of just the, time of the timing and, 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 it allowed you then to become much more interactive, which made the relationships better, which sure. whatever. Do you remember when you first got your, when you got your first PC? Cause I assume it was a PC before a laptop. Yeah, we, so when I, when I first started, 
if you had something that needed to be typed, you had two possibilities. One is if a partner really, really wanted it quickly, then you could take it to his secretary because all the partners had secretaries who typed things that were going to go out, like outgoing mail, had to be signed by a partner, had to be in writing. Like you, All advice had to be in writing and had to be signed by a partner. Like the letter had to be signed by a partner. So the you could take it to the, the partner secretary and they would type it for you. Or you took it to Steno. Steno was a group of people in a room with typewriters and you'd take their, your thing to the front desk and somebody would put it on a on a uh, one of those old-fashioned you know stick things and it would go through in order like you you couldn't jump to the head of the of, of the it. line if you were jumping to the head of the line it was important enough that a partner would say for a secretary to type it Got anything it. below that level just went through steno in the ordinary course and you'd get it back in the mail like probably the next day if there there were I don't know, 50 people working in Steno? Wow. 25, 30 people? I don't know. But then suddenly, probably only a year or two after I started, a company called Wang, which long since disappeared, was one of the huge tech companies of of the early 80s. They invented a word processing machine. Mm. And suddenly, we had word processing. Yeah. And Steno had word processing. And then some other people were allowed to have work. And the machine, again, these word processing machines were the size of this desk with a typewriter on it. But you could correct things. It didn't print out until you were done. And it massively changed how quickly things got done. And, but, I mean, the audit reports, the, the, the physical audit report would be typed in steno. Sure. And, I mean, it was just, it was a very different. So let, let's turn to a little, let's turn to some tax here, because I, okay. I love talking about the technology and how that's evolved. It, it's, a, it's, it's hopefully interesting for our listeners just to think how much has changed in a little over 30 years. Well, 40. 40 now years, I guess. We we're are. counting. Yeah, it's, we are counting. We're, okay. we're, we're counting lawyers here. Um, but l- let's talk about the 86 Act, because there are only so many that are practicing today that, that were practicing during the, the, the 86 Act. And... Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like, you know, because obviously the, with the, the, the TCJA, the, the tax reform that we got, yeah. I guess about a year and a half ago, it was, you know, relatively quickly put together, I think, compared back to the 86 Act and really just wanted to get some of your reflections on kind of what took place then. And then I know there were technical corrections, I think, both in 87 and 88. And you know, obviously the prospect for technical corrections yeah. with the mixed government today is a lot less likely. But can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the 86 Act was a big deal. But but there had actually been fairly big tax acts in 80, 81, 82, and 84. So the the early 80s, and so 75, there was a big tax act. And then 81, 82, 84, there were material changes. And, and so there was a process that, that we sort of thought was normal. You know, we ignorant practitioners as opposed to you know, people who were in the government and may have had a completely different view of how this all worked. But the 86 Act began with a Treasury white paper. And then 
there was a, a, a 1985, so in, in, in 1986, 1985, 1984, Ronald Reagan, a Republican, was president, and the Democrats controlled the House, and a guy named Dan Rostenkowski was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And the, the House Ways and the, the committees in those days, I think, had more power, and maybe the chairman had more power than they do now for various reasons that have, you know, occurred along the way. Mm -hmm. And so Rostenkowski had put together, had, had sort of organized that they would have tax reform and so forth. And he and, and, and Reagan agreed that this was a good idea, not necessarily on all the, the fine points, but that, you know, the, the system needed to be fixed. And, they had hearings. Um, there were, you know, that the process probably took two or three years of people thinking through, you know, what should this look like, and then having hearings. Um, they had hearings with with industry people testifying, with you know, academics mm -hmm. testifying, practitioners. Um, yeah, practitioners. So they got a whole lot of feedback from a variety of sources in public hearings and in private hearings, but in, in a lot of public hearings as they were developing the, the, the provisions. And, and a lot of the feedback was, was pushback. Because, um, you know, people, whatever apple cart you were on, it was going to get upset. Right. And you might, you might not like the apple cart or you might like the apple cart, but there were people on, you know, multiple apple sure. carts. Sure, so, we're seeing that too today. And... So it was it was a fairly you know fairly long and fairly comprehensive process, and even then, one of the consequences of the eighty six Act was. This is this is my view, not to be confused with with everybody else's view, but I think a fairly widely held view that the eighty six Act, un, one of the unintended consequences of the eighty six Act was the savings and loan crisis of of eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, when, the it was kind of like the 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 Great Recession, you know, in 2007, eight, eight nine, yep. the, there was a massive failure of, of the savings and loans. And, and the reason was a massive decline in the value of real estate. And, and mortgages were underwater and there were lots of defaults and so forth. Well, the 86 Act eliminated the ability of individuals to significantly take deductions for real estate losses. And up until then, one of the big tax shelters was selling individuals ownership in, you know, buildings, big commercial buildings, where the depreciation was very, very rapid. The deductions far exceeded your cash. You know, you could actually be cash positive and losing money. And that market, they, they, because by they put in the passive loss rules, that market disappeared. And real estate prices crashed. Mm -hmm. And... That was not in the plan, right? The plan of the 86 Act was not kill the real estate market. An unintended consequence. But it happened. And I think there's a, a reasonable consensus that a significant contributor was the un, you know, sort of the ancillary consequences of, of reform. And the consequences of reform longer term, I think, you know, you can say, well, we're fine. But the, there, there are always these short-term disruptions that, frankly, people hadn't thought about. And that was one where they'd been thinking about this for years, and gotten a lot of, you know, I mean, real estate industry had testified. There were, 
you know, so it, nobody could see could see this despite well, they the, could see the real estate industry complained that they were going to it was going to hurt them. But nobody actually thought that would mean bank failures. Got it. Right. I mean, that that was sure. So I, I think that I we haven't and I maybe we won't. But I mean, I haven't seen systemic unintended consequences of the the recent tax act the TCJ, right it's yeah. it's a like there are consequences people are you know some people are happy some people are sad um but the systemic consequences there's no industry that suddenly is at risk because the tax laws changed in such a way that made them you know non-competitive or right whatever um i think that you know maybe it's too early because it did take you know two or three years after the eighty six act for things to f- sort of flow through but and and maybe it'll maybe it'll be all a function of of government revenues maybe the the only sort of ancillary consequence is if we have a huge increase in our deficits and it does result in a huge increase in interest rates, and therefore you know the government is is uh, significantly hampered in its ability to spend money elsewhere, maybe that'll be the consequence but 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 I, I don't like, I guess what I wouldn't say what I would say is I don't see a similar situation where there's a specific industry where you can you can point to that change in the law really affected that industry. And oh, wow, there were ripple effects we hadn't really thought through. Yeah. And I know there were some service companies, particularly that were where a lot of the services are performed outside the U.S. that were concerned that were going to be subject to the bead. I think some of those have been, you know, and taken care of with respect to the regs, assuming those regs get finalized, but, but, but largely agree. So I think what's, what, what I view as interesting about the 86 Act, that was done with a, with bi, in a bipartisan yeah. environment, right? Yes. And, and then technical corrections, right? Because, I mean, that's one of the things we saw. We got the JCT report. It is very comprehensive. The JCT report for the most recent tax act right. for the TCJA outlined a number of different technical corrections that need to be made given just the yeah. how quickly the reform was was put together but then i think the likelihood you know at least in today's political environment that with the democratic controlled house and a republican controlled government whether we can get those technical corrections through there's obviously a question of how much authority treasury has to try to fix right. some of those things yeah. but what what was it like in, in 87 88 because i know they there were technical corrections oh, right were, both those there years were, there were technical I, corrections act in 87 and 88 and i think they might have even called uh one there might have been even one in 89 but the so some of those technical corrections were retrospective to date of enactment most of them weren't most of them were effective you know at the time the technical corrections bill i don't know got got to committee or you know 6 months after passage or something because um i think at the time the the uh the the policy was if they were clarifying a clear congressional intent, like if the statute had failed to accurately implement con- obvious congressional intent, they could go back to the effective date. But if, it, if that wasn't the case, then they, they should be prospective. And because they had massive committee report, like the committee reports of the 86 Act were pages and pages and pages of discussion. And they'd had all these hearings and they'd had colloquies. So there were a number of provisions where it was pretty clear what congressional intent Mm -hmm. was, right? It wasn't, 
it was all out in the open of what congressional intent was. I think it's a bigger struggle in in the process that led to the TCJA to articulate congressional intent because because it it happened very very quickly. A lot of it happened in a in a closed room and was sort of take it or leave it mm-hmm. to Congress. So to 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 say boy, it's really obvious what the congressional intent around that provision was when it was never discussed individually, you know, on the floor or in a committee or whatever, I think is, is extremely difficult. And whether, but whether Congress, whether they, whether they would pass a, a bill or not, whether they would be constrained by only going back retrospectively for stuff where it was clear what they had intended and it was just like bad drafting or, you know, whatever, or whether they felt like they ought to be able to go back and, and fix it, whether the, whether the intent was clear or not. Right. You know, it remains to be seen. Yeah. A great, an example of that that we've talked a bunch of times on cross-border tax talks is whether guilty was a minimum tax. Yeah. Right. And whether yeah. interest expense apportionment should apply such that companies that are paying greater than 13.125 would still end up with residual U.S. tax liability. And there was that one line in the conference report that kind of, I think, implied or I'm not even sure it implied it stated that it was a minimum tax. And then, well, it made it it gave an example. I, I, you know, it gave an example. That's I, I, you and know, it's what, like, was that the intention? Yeah, yeah. And then obviously, I, I, and, I think and Treasury's I, yeah. view that it's and not. I guess I guess what I would say is. If if the process had been similar to that in '86, it would have, I, th- you know, I mean, this is a long time ago. Right. My recollection is fading, but I think it would have been impossible for a provision of that magnitude to have had that little in the way of background on what the intent was. Right? I mean, whatever the intent was. I think it would have been more clearly articulated because it would have been discussed in a variety of places in hearings in the Senate, hearings in the House. And so I don't think you would have been able to pass something with that sort of dramatic consequence that wasn't more clearly articulated in, in the legislative history. Sure. Um, what, what about the, the regulatory process, once you remember? Because, I mean, I just, you know, I think about the volume of regs, particularly, you know, as an international yeah. and a foreign tax credit and yeah. the expense apportionment and just what a huge endeavor. And I know one of your fellow, our fellow retired partners, Alan Fischel, I think, was was a treasury at the time. Yeah, he, he's, JCT, yeah but, he, he's, he's responsible for some of the worst regs. <laughs> but, they, um, but, but just what a huge endeavor. And it, it was. the treasury today has a huge endeavor. But, like, I feel like that back in the in 86 or you know for the 86 act that they had all of this additional information well, they did uh, i i think they knew what they needed to say i think the fact is there just was so much to say that that i one of the bizarre examples so that they the 86 act repealed general utilities and and created corporate level tax corporate level tax was not the norm prior to the 86 Act. Like, corporations could dis- could dispose of assets without really paying tax. Through in, a distribution in a, in a, of those assets to their shareholders and generally or, avoid or, tax. Or through a, um, through a partial liquidation. There, I mean, there were just a bunch of provisions in the 300s that got taken out that, that allowed 
corporations to get rid of assets. I mean, a corporation could sell all its assets and liquidate, and there'd be no corporate level tax sure. if it happened within a year of, of, of the sale. So, so the repeal of general utilities took corporate tax from being partial to being complete. And a number of the technical corrections addressed very, very quick <laughs> workarounds that, that people came up with to go back to partial taxation. Mm -hmm. And some of those were retrospective and some of them weren't. But one of the regulations that was issued about the application of general utilities and the avoidance of corporate level tax wasn't finalized until like two years ago. The, the May department store ah, regs. Yeah, yeah. Section 337D was put in the code in 86. They issued some proposed regs in, I think it was 89, and they didn't finalize any regs under that statute until like 2016 or 17. That's a long time. It's a long time. To not have guidance on like a statutory provision, which was a pretty important statutory provision. So, so part of it was the volume, like the proposed 163J regs mm. came in in 1989, never got finalized. So the, there were a lot of provisions where they issued guidance or they didn't issue guidance and, and never actually issued it, or they issued guidance and they revised the guidance, um, but they spent, a, you know, the, 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 the foreign tax credit regs, the, the, they, they, they issued those, those were horrendously complicated by virtue of the 22 baskets and the that was a, a quantum leap from what they had been you know there, there are other areas that the guidance is sketchy I mean, the, the the whole 861 construct is pretty thorough but right on how, how to allocate expenses between baskets between u.s and foreign sources yeah. and for purposes of foreign tax credit limitation etc but a lot of that came slowly I mean, they were okay. still adding regs, you know, into the 80s, I mean, into the 90s. So as we think about the, the TCJA, what, what surprised you the most about uh, our new U.S. system? The, the analogy that I give while, while you're contemplating is that well, they, yeah. I, I kind of thought they might tear down the house and build a new one. But I feel like they, they took yeah. the existing house and just added several floors, including guilty and, yeah. and beat. And so effectively, they took our same foreign tax credit system, but yet call it a now a territorial yeah. system. Yeah, but I, 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 I said at the time that they would not pass tax reform. And I stand by that statement. They didn't pass tax reform. They, they, they added a hodgepodge of additional provisions, which benefit certain companies and to, and don't benefit other companies. And I think that there are a variety of provisions which are yielding uh, consequences that were not what they actually intended. And I think that some of the provisions, even as, as originally contemplated, work at cross-purposes. I mean, it makes, it makes no sense if you're trying to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S., to provide a very low rate of U.S. tax on low-taxed foreign manufacturing operations. And so you, you have the, 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 the FIDI regime, which is incentivizing U.S. companies to export. Right. But at the same time, you have the guilty regime, 
which is incentivizing U.S. companies to generate non-subpart F income overseas in low-tax jurisdictions because the tax rate is actually lower on that income. The U.S. tax rate is lower on that income than it is on the, on the export income. So you have these provisions that don't seem to be part of a cohesive policy framework. Yeah, and, and, and is that the result of the speed with which it was put together and therefore the failure of academics and, and so forth to sort of point that all out in advance so that people could work on making it more cohesive? I don't know. So you practiced almost 40 years. You, you got two. 40, it would be 40 in August. 40 in August. So just shy of 40 years. You saw two major U.S. tax reforms, if we're even going to call the second one a reform. I, I like your angle on that. So I've got about 15 years left. Do you, do you think I'll see uh, a, another change? I mean, will we really move to a, a true territorial system, do you think, over the next 15 years? Is our regime stable and we don't need to get into the WTO and, you know, any of those types of issues. But just if if you were a betting guy, am, am I going to see another major U.S. tax shift uh, before the end of my career? I yes. Yes. Um, how. Where it will go, mm-hmm. I haven't the slightest idea. Um, I I was one of the people who actually made it all the way through Thomas Piketty's book, and um, he he said at the end of of uh, capitalism in the twentieth century, the twenty first century, that that um, c- corporate tax would go away. That because of the inexorable race for jobs and investment, eventually it's just going to be a race to the bottom and corporate taxes will disappear. And therefore, the only way that governments will get funded is increased taxes on individuals. Property taxes. You know, wealth taxes yeah. and so forth. Um, that's, that's a view. I think that's probably more than 15 years away. In, in yeah. My uh, well, it, uh, I, I thought the OECD, the whole OECD initiative on BEPS would take, 15 years and touche yeah so things things get get momentum going and you know the the i also you know on the other side you have the current democrats running for president saying you know wealth taxes increase corporate taxes so so there's a there's another wing out there the and this is the oecd as well sure that no corporations aren't paying enough tax and therefore, you know, you could have a major change, which included rate increases and, and a, a harsher regime on foreign profits and so forth. So, you know, you've got whether whether it's Piketty or it's, uh, you know, Bernie, I, I don't know. But I but I'm guessing that within 15 years, you will see a major U.S. tax law change. All right. Well, you heard it first here on Cross Border Tax Talks. We're going to have to leave it at that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Richard McGinnis, retiring PwC International Tax Partner, for joining me on, on this episode. And a special thanks, Richard, for being such a great mentor and friend to me over the years since our past crossed about 10 years ago. I, I really appreciate it. You'll be it's missed. It's been a pleasure. So I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Policy Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.